What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome, everybody, and here's what's ahead of us. Markets are in wait-and-see mode with the jobs report just around the corner. We're going to have an inside look at what recruiters are seeing when it comes to the labor market and what that could tell us about tomorrow's number. Plus, will the U.S. ever go back to pre-COVID levels of oil production? Not according to one energy CEO who says the industry of mobility and comfort is gone. He'll join us with more on that ahead. And as rates plunge and rocket tries to jump, we talk about that, a Facebook hotline, shedding light on Nikola's revenue and still buying in bulk. It's Dom's favorite topic. It's all ahead in rapid fire, though. You have to wait. We begin with the markets. Mr. Chu has those numbers. How do you know me so well, <laughs> Kelly? Yes, I'm looking forward to that rapid fire segment when we get to talk about Costco and all those other stories you just mentioned. For right now, though, some of the storylines we're following involve the modest gains that we're seeing in the market right now. Green across the screen. Yes, it's not massive, but still about two-tenths of one percent gains for the Dow Industrials, about one-tenth of a percent gain for the S&P 500, and a third of a percent gain for the Nasdaq. Remember, that's been the real outperformer as of late right now. We'll see if those trends continue into afternoon trading. One key area to watch that we haven't talked a lot about recently because we've been so focused on technology is what's happening with transportation stocks. Many consider them to be a leading indicator for the overall economy, maybe even the market. This particular ETF that tracks transportation companies is now up roughly around 55% from their COVID-19 low levels. The reason why it's important, this is at the highest levels that we've seen since February now, so we'll see if that sticks around as well as a theme. And then, to end things off, one of the companies that's seen a surge during the COVID-19 lockdown has been companies like Fastly. It's off about 18% today, but remember, this is a stock that back in May rallied up around 455% because of some of the optimism around some of these more tech-oriented companies. It's one to watch, though, again, down 18% today after a massive move higher, Fastly, in the months just over the last couple of weeks. Back over to you. Yeah, that's been one of the best performers lately, Dom, giving some back today. Meanwhile, markets overall are focusing on tomorrow's jobs report after ADP numbers showed that job growth slowed dramatically in July. And Cleveland Fed President Loretta Messer voiced her own concerns about the labor market last night. She said as of mid-July, over half of district contacts have told us they are meaningfully altering their plans in response to the rise in virus cases. She said that includes reducing employment or employee compensation, canceling or postponing planned capital expenditures, and more. But the latest survey from Recruiter.com, which has called it right for the last three jobs reports, says things aren't as bad as you might think. Joining me now is Evan Sohn. He is the CEO of Recruiter.com. He's also co-founder of the Sohn Conference, which our audience will know so well. Evan, it's great to have you. Welcome. Great to see you, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. So how would you describe the labor market in anticipation of what the Labor Department is likely to tell us tomorrow? Well, for the Recruiter.com Recruiter Index, recruiter sentiment turned down a bit from 3.3 in June to 3.1 in July. It stands markedly higher from the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak and the subsequent economic shutdown. So 42.6% of recruiters now say that COVID-19 is greatly affecting their recruiting activities, a significant increase 
from the 16.3% in in June and does mark the end of our th third month over month increase likely due to the increased COVID-19 case rate reporting from various states. Yeah, and again, this is out of five. So basically, we had climbed up to 3.3. Now we're slipping back some, but not dramatically. Uh, also, another data point jumped out to me was the average number of open roles per recruiter is down to 15 uh, in July from 20 in June. Still the lowest point in April was 12. So the, the picture that you're painting matches up with what a lot of the data is telling us, which is that the economy hasn't maybe lost a ton of momentum, but it has stalled out. And in some cases, certainly in the labor market's case, you know, moved a little bit back. Um, I, I don't know if you guys do an actual kind of pinpoint forecast for what that would likely mean for the July jobs report, but yeah. what directionally does that tell you? That's so funny. You know, I get so many questions of, you know, from the Wall Street, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's right. going to happen? You know, the interesting thing is that if we look at the, the April number and our index really is uh, an average of both the short and long term sentiment. So the low was really in April when it was 2.3. In May, it jumped to 3.0. In June, it was 3.3. And now we're back to 3.1. So it is a decline, but not a cliff, really not a cliff at all. And if you look at the next and we'll publish the report probably tomorrow. If you look at the next 30, 30 days and 90 days, over the next 30 days, 77.8% of the recruiters believe demand are, are going to stay stable or increase. And over the next 90 days, 55.2%, again, predict overall demand will improve. So I think all in, it's pointing to an increase in employment, but at a slower rate than we saw last month, but certainly there's optimism for the next 90 days. And also one more thing in here, and this goes back to uh, one of the data points in the official report people follow, which is the number who are on temporary layoff. Um, you guys found that a lot of the recruiters see these setbacks in terms of openings and hiring as momentary, that they still think demand for talent will stay stable or increase over the next 30 days. I mean, 78 percent of recruiters think so. Is that just wishful thinking or are they telling us that, you know, there is that the economy is more resilient than we imagine? People just need a little bit more clarity. Yeah, so I, I think that when you look at recruiters, what are when are you using a recruiter? And we look at our network of recruiters. And their, uh, their, their jobs that they're involved in are either what we would call precision, right, find me a very specific individual, or find me lots of a certain type of individual, more on the staffing side or temporary staffing. And both those numbers are increasing, just not at the same rate that they were increasing 30 days ago. All right. Well, you know, it's my two cents. I think you should put this out today because once the official thing comes out tomorrow morning, no one cares anymore. Everybody moves on. <laughs> you know, you got to get them now while they want every little drip of information. That's right. We'll certainly get out as soon as possible. We give you guys the exclusivity, so Thank we, you. We'll, we'll push it out after this. We very much appreciate it, Evan. It's good to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks so much. Evan Stone is the CEO of Recruiter.com. Let's get to the latest now in Washington, where the stimulus stalemate continues. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi butting heads right here on CNBC earlier. Listen. The Democratic House put together a $3 trillion basically liberal wish list that we think goes far beyond what is appropriate for this situation. Around 70,000 people have died while Mr. McConnell passed the, uh, pressed the pause button. Will we find a solution? We will. Will we have an agreement? We will. Here to talk more about that is Stephanie Miller. She's managing director at Fiscal Note Markets. And Stephanie, it's good to see you again. It it's seemed at first, I always get fooled by Washington because I thought at first everybody agreed on the $1,200 checks to people and it was just a matter of kind of hammering it out. And now once again, 
I don't know if there's going to be any agreement. I don't know what the president, it sounds like he would do as much as he possibly could tomorrow. And the markets aren't even pushing them, it feels like, for more of a response. So what do you think, how do you think this all plays out? Yeah, it's so interesting. I have covered a number of these kind of very big policy um, pieces of legislation moving through Congress. And Wall Street is sick and tired of the fighting. So they sort of price a little bit of that in, I think. So I think this feeling like it's not going to get done feels like more of the same that we see from Washington. I think the real question is, like, is this actually not going to get done? Or will they do what they normally do, fight up until the very end, and then come forward with some sort of agreement? Yeah, I see here that you still think the there will be a bill about a trillion, trillion and a half in size, uh, a final deal by roughly August 15th. Um, so tell me, I mean, again, is all of this just kind of wrangling in public, but we all know the broad outlines of it, and it's just a matter of time until we get that, you know, aid to schools, for example, uh, maybe some longer-term infrastructure things, and so much more. You know, for people who are waiting on the jobless benefits or wondering about the $1,200 check or even the payroll tax cut the president keeps saying he's, he's going to deliver, is he really able to do anything tomorrow, or are we going to just get all of this or some of this in a package w- within the next week or so? Yeah, I think what I'm the real event I'm looking for is does Mitch McConnell announce that the Senate is adjourned for its August recess with no deal? Because so long as he keeps bringing the Senate back, so they were not supposed to be in session next week, but they are coming back next week because the deal is not done. I think that signals to me, I think it signals to the markets that they're not really in agreement yet on the details of any of the things that you mentioned, but they're willing to keep talking. I think if Republicans say that they're going to adjourn with no deal, I I would expect that to get a lot of people's attention because I'm not expecting that. And I think a lot of people are not. But that said, when I speak to people on Capitol Hill right now, I guess they're not literally on Capitol Hill anymore, but staffers working remotely and working on the Hill they are not particularly optimistic. And I, that, again, reminds me of previous debates, previous big policy items. When it gets close to the end, the staff are the first to sort of sour on prospects. So it doesn't leave me overly concerned, but there is a real sense of pessimism in Washington right now, which is not to be sort of underestimated. No, I'm glad to hear you say that because it it kind of fits with how this appears to be evolving. And maybe the issue is that it's the flip side of the optimism in markets. You know, we have the Nasdaq over 11,000. We have basically all the averages at record highs. It's not like we get headlines that point towards uh, stalling in Washington and all of a sudden we have these big sell-offs. I mean, the, the market does not seem to care. So perhaps, like you said, if we get an adjournment, I'll ask our, you know, the market guests about this. If, if McConnell adjourns without an agreement and we, we sell off 5%, okay, maybe then we get a big bill. But if that doesn't happen, maybe we don't. I mean, what is, is it possible that people aren't going to get an extension of boosted jobless benefits, that we aren't going to see more checks to households because the market is telling us the economy doesn't need it? Yeah, the market is certainly confusing um, because it's not reconciled with the economy. It doesn't always seem to be reconciled with news. And I think folks who watch this channel often and folks who follow in Wall Street who follows the market regularly know that there's a a lot of other things going on, so much as that market is tethered to big tech stocks, for example, which is sort of removed from some of these other issues. But I'm looking at some polling right now, and only one in 10 people, according to an economist YouGov poll from about a week ago, say that they don't want something to happen. So I think if 90% of the country is telling Congress to act, 
whatever the market is doing, I think that they really have to act. So I do think that it's way more likely than not that this deal gets done. All right. And we'll leave it on that note. Stephanie, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Stephanie Miller on the latest in Washington. And as investors await these two big developments, both the stimulus package and the jobs report tomorrow, they're not exactly clamoring for more aid right now. The NASDAQ is above 11,000 after notching its 31st record close this year. The Dow and the S&P are up for a fifth straight session. The S&P is just 2% off its record high. Joining me are Terry Spath, the chief investment officer of Sierra Mutual Funds, and Sandy Villery is co-portfolio manager of the Villery Balanced Fund. First question to both of you, Terry, you first, is what would the markets do if it looked like there wasn't going to be a stimulus deal in Washington? Hi, Kelly. Yeah, good to see you. And if there isn't a stimulus package bill that's passed, as the last guest said, I think that's not what's expected. You know, we've gone from the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years to the highest in 90 years. So I think Congress really needs to act. And so, you know, if we don't see something happen, I think that will be unexpected. And that would certainly hurt uh, the risk on trade that we've been witnessing recently. Sandy, you agree with that? Yeah, I, I actually do. I mean, the market is expecting some sort of deal to get done. So anything that doesn't uh, happen uh, along those lines, you'll probably see a little bit of sell off of a sell off. But I would be um, I'd be waiting and, and, and enjoying that. I'd, I'd look forward to uh, putting more money to work at, at lower levels if something like that were to happen. Yeah, a classic investor point of view. Tell me where you want to put money to work, Sandy. What, what areas do you think are kind of not cheap enough for you right now? Um, where do you still see good opportunities? We're, we're sort of avoiding, um, you know, you, you look at the S&P, which is basically, I feel like, uh, you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and Microsoft. I mean, we're sort of avoiding those names. We want to find things that are, younger, um, cheaper, and things that could, um, you know, just smaller. Um, and so we're looking at several areas in the healthcare industry that might be a little bit more defensive. In fact, uh, we, we, we've got a couple uh, uh, ideas and in, in even the casino space that we think is, uh, is going to be risky over the very short run, but can make, uh, can make our clients a lot of money over the next two to three years. Yeah, referring to Caesars there, I know it's on your list, Teleflex uh, and Ligand Pharmaceuticals. So, Terry, what about you? Would you also be avoiding big tech? Well, that's interesting what Sandy said. That's sort of the stay-at-home trade, right? The, the, I don't know how to pronounce the F-A-A-A-N-M right. names, the people that are staying at home and ordering hand sanitizer on Amazon or binging on Netflix to watch Breaking Bad. Those stocks are up 26% through June 30th, whereas the rest of the market, if you strip that out, is down 9%. So you've got a real bifurcation in what's going on in the market. So we're looking for a barbell strategy in that uh, emerging market equities look really interesting as well as, and before I lose your audience, um, municipal bonds, I think could be a really interesting trade in here. They're doing very well. Uh, the economy's picking back up. And so that barbell strategy is something that can make a lot of sense right here. I, I think the audience loves muni bonds, Terry. We actually going to talk more <laughs> about that in the back half of the show, in fact. So stay tuned. Uh, Terry Spath and Sandy Villery, thank you both today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly for sharing Thank your thoughts you, on Kelly. these markets. Coming up, we're also going to talk some oil. It's trying to climb out of its rut still. We've jumped more than 70% in three months, but one energy CEO says we'll never pump as much as we did pre-COVID. He joins us next. Plus, Quicken Loans' parent company going public today, but the stock only up about 8% after pricing below the range, and this on the day that mortgage rates plunged to a new record low. We're going to look into this company and its IPO ahead. And the real story behind Nikola's very small quarterly revenue it's all coming up on The Exchange.
This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Parsley Energy are a little lower today after they reported mixed second quarter results. Stock's still down about 40 percent on the year. The company beat on earnings but misses Street's revenue estimate as it recovers from the crude price crash. But will U.S. oil production ever recover back to pre-COVID levels? My next guess isn't so sure. Here now to talk earnings, the state of the oil market and more is Matt Gallagher. He is the president and CEO of Parsley Energy. Matt, it's good to have you back. Welcome. Great to be back, Kelly. Nice to be with you. So I want to start with with why you think 13 million barrels a day is a, a threshold we may never reach again in terms of U.S. oil production. Well, it took tremendous amounts of capital to to reach that 13 million barrels a day, grow 7 million barrels over the course of 10 years. It was great for the U.S. economy, great for the uh, citizens of the U.S., uh, but we have these steep declines in in the shale profile. So when you pull back that investment, which we had to do as an industry in the face of negative oil pricing, uh, you're going to see production come off. And that's what we've seen. It got down to 10 million barrels a day. And I just don't see it ever reclaiming that 13 million barrel a day threshold again. Well, it's interesting because if you take it from the point of view of, hey, we want something that's great for the economy and great for the national interest. And now you're saying we might not have that again. Uh, but we do need a viable energy industry, and I guess you can't have it all. That's right. So now we have to deliver on financial results, not just growth for the country's sake or growth for our industry's sake. So we're shifting both at Parsley and as an industry to deliver on Rochi, Croci, fundamental drivers that make this industry a compelling investment compared to other industries. Using some of the industry jargon there that investors are focused on, Matt. So using you guys as kind of a case study, um, tell me how much your production is down, how much you think it's going to realistically grow again, and how your investment plans are changing as a result. Well, sure. Coming into into this price war that we saw last quarter, we took 20% of our production proactively offline. We did not want to produce into a negative oil price environment that has rebounded so we're we're flat now and we think we can keep our production at about 110,000 barrels of oil a day and we foresee uh, for the near term keeping it flat uh, when there's spare capacity of over 11 million barrels a day in the globe we don't need extra barrels on the globe right now uh, but longer term that could go into a mid to high single digit growth when that supply demand is needed again from the U.S. Yeah, I'm curious. So if you guys are basically flat um, and we've seen some bankruptcies, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, not a ton. So, you know, who's getting squeezed out? Is every company just giving up a little bit? Is that is it that we're not growing? Um, I guess I'm saying has the shakeout, is it over or does it still need to come? The, the big jolt is likely over. You're going to see some some fringe and some follow through bankruptcies, most likely. Um, but, of course, those assets go into other hands and the production is monitored either through those teams or others. Uh, so the big part of the decline, I think, is over. So it's stabilization 
from here. And then uh, as OPEC brings up back on their barrels over the course of the next 12 months, that's where the majority of the growth will come. They have about uh, 10 million, 11 million barrels offline today. And that's going to about 9 million barrels offline in about a month from now. Yeah, so they're going to be back potentially in the leadership position. Where do you think the oil price will be your best guess by the end of the year? I think all else being equal, we're seeing this 40 to $45 range. If it spikes up uh, past that, I'm looking at WTI when I reference that, um, you'll probably see um, a little bit of demand impact. Uh, people are very sensitive uh, to the price of the pump, as they should be. Uh, so in that range, and of course, we budget at partially in the $35 oil range. All right. So in many ways, a new normal for the industry. Matt, thanks for joining us to talk about it. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Matt Gallagher, CEO and president of Parsley. Coming up, if you're looking to take a dip in your new backyard pool this summer, think again. Sales are skyrocketing and the wait list is growing. We'll look at who's benefiting the most. Plus, our quiet climber today, we're going to look at the best performing non-microcap stock on the planet over the past 18 months. We'll tell you what this is. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Checking on markets this afternoon. We're in a bit of a holding pattern, waiting for Washington to hammer out that next round of stimulus like we were discussing, waiting for the jobs report this morning. Dow's up 36 just off the session highs. S&P's up three. NASDAQ up 43, and that puts it over 11,000. Still crazy to watch that. Sector board behind me also shows not huge movers, technology, uh, consumer discretionary, communication services. Those are back in the leadership position, leading the way, while healthcare is actually the weakest sector sector today uh, with about a 1% decline. Energy is the second weakest. Some individual movers that we've had a lot of earnings and IPO news. Shares of Uber are higher ahead of its report tonight, but that's not all investors are waiting on today. We're also expecting a key ruling from a California judge on whether Uber has to treat its drivers as employees. The stock is up 3.5%, just over $34 a share. Facebook is also moving higher despite building pressure on the tech giant to do more to combat hate speech. 20 state attorneys general say Facebook needs to offer live responses in the form of a hotline. We'll have more on that in rapid fire. Facebook shares, look at this, are up nearly 6% today, about 263. And Roku is lower, even though it beat on its top and bottom line in its latest report. They do not expect ad TV spend in total to recover to pre-COVID levels until well into 2021. So a bit of a disappointment for investors there. Roku shares are down about 8%. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Sue? 
Thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has tested positive for the coronavirus. The test was done as part of routine screening because the governor was scheduled to greet President Trump after he landed in Cleveland. DeWine has no symptoms right now, but he will self-isolate. Portland police have declared riot-like conditions for the second night in a row. Confrontations between police and protesters in Portland have continued since late May, sparked by the death of George Floyd. Capital One will pay $80 million to a U.S. regulator after the company suffered a massive data breach last year. The bank was fined for failing to adequately identify and manage risk as it moved significant portions of its technological operations to the cloud. And Lebanon's Customs Department says one of the country's main security agencies reported to the cabinet in the past year about the danger from explosive chemicals being stored at Beirut's port. 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate were left sitting in a warehouse for years, despite repeated warnings from customs officials. And we see the result there with that massive explosion yesterday. You are up to date. That is the news update this hour. Kelly, I will send it back to you. All right, Sue, thank you. Now let's get to today's quiet climber. We are looking at C, ticker SE. The stock is down today, up just a couple of percent. But in the past 18 months, it's the world's best performing stock of any name with a market cap over a billion dollars. It's up 880 percent during that time and down about 5 percent today. Let's dive into it. This is an Internet and mobile platform provider based in Singapore. They operate in three categories, entertainment, e-commerce and digital finance. C was founded in 2009. It went public in 2017 and it's outperformed every single S&P stock in the past year, far ahead of even any of the big tech fang names. Its market cap is now nearly $69 billion. It's up 435% from its 52-week low. Its annual low was about $26. And as you can see behind me, we're now back to 138 for C. Coming up, will record low rates and huge volume boost Rockets shares? Why Nikola's very small quarterly revenue was a bright spot for an executive? Does Facebook need a hate speech hotline and one company that continues to make a big splash? Join us for Rapid Fire right after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire, and here to break down the headlines are Robert Frank, Leslie Picker, and Dom Chu. Welcome, everybody. First topic, it is the IPO of the day, Rocket Companies. That's the Quicken Loans parent company. They debuted in the public market, but they're not exactly rocketing higher, guys. They're up about 8%. They priced at 18. That was below the target range of 20 to 22. And its IPO comes on the same day. You think all of these positive things are working in its favor. Mortgage rates hit a record low of 2.88%. Leslie, I th- what was the IPO yesterday? Bio, whatever, bio commerce. Big, no, big, big commerce. commerce. Big Biggest commerce was IPO yesterday. of the and year. Rackspace. Ra- I mean, Rackspace was kind of a dog. But listen, why, they- what's going on with Quicken? You'd think this would be like one of the hottest places to be right now. Yeah, I think a lot of headline writers were ready to say, you know, the shares of this company were were rocketing higher. But alas, <laughs> uh, you know, they are getting a bit of a boost today, but they did price below the range they had been pitching to investors. A big part of this is valuation. Companies like this 
want to be valued and bankers say that they can be valued like a tech company but when they actually bring the deal to Wall Street Wall Street says no I, I actually think this should be valued more like a financial company they were initially seeking a valuation of about 22 times EBITDA uh, you know they had to take that down a notch to get more of Wall Street to to buy into this one and given the size and scale of it it had to work so they had to price it a bit lower uh, yeah. to get a, a, at least a bit of a pop today EBITDA, Shmibita, Robert. We're about to talk about Nikola. They, <laughs> you know, they have thirty-six thousand dollars in revenue. There were not much Shmibita. Right. I, I mean, why is it that in this case we have to be so differentiating? But in the, you know, is it just simply like Leslie said, they're just not in enough of an no, exciting what industry? It, no, what investors want is a lack of earnings, Kelly, and a lack of a business model. <laughs> the problem that Quicken had is they had too many earnings. They had nine hundred million dollars in earnings last year, growth of forty-six percent. <laughs> And they were a 35-year-old company, so they had actually a proven track record of making money, which disqualifies you That's from true. being valued as a tech company. Way too boring, Dom. <laughs> Way too boring. I, I guess, yeah, when you're an established business like mortgage origination and you're the biggest player out there, I guess there's no premium that, that you pay for it. I, I, I looked at this as more of a commentary on what the future of mortgages are going to be like, given the interest rate dynamic that you mentioned. I don't know how robust you could see things if rates are just held at such a low level for an extended period of time. Remember, for a company like Quicken, these guys aren't playing interest rate spreads necessarily. They're, they're mortgage originators. They don't actually hold these mortgages on their books. They, they end up selling them off, right? Either they're Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac back mortgages that they sell to the government or, or anything else. They're trying to make like a transaction fee on this. Yeah, see, and that this was is, boring. That, that's, that's boring. That's and I'm not sure how much, <laughs> much more upside there is because of that situation. They should have done a SPAC. Then it would really be rocketing. Uh, that's what we've learned this year. <laughs> Let's talk about Nikola. Documents from the company's first quarter as a public company reveal the origin of its only source of revenue. And it turns out the founder and executive chairman paid Nikola $36,000 for a solar installation during the quarter. The company's stock is higher today. It did plunge about 10% yesterday. Robert, it's up about 11% since going public through, was that through this back in June? Uh, despite not generating regular revenue by selling vehicles. So again, to me, these are, are two great kind of, you know, bookends uh, to the market that we're in right now. Absolutely. So this is a company that doesn't have a product. It's got a business plan, but no business. I actually like this model of recycled wealth of the chairman as earnings, because <laughs> really the only one that seems to be really benefiting for right now is, the, is, is Trevor Martin. And, and he has become a billionaire. And he, I guess the only revenue came from installing solar panels. And maybe, you know, he's got a $32 million ranch. Maybe he can pay employees to do some ranching and make money the next quarter. But this does seem to be the only source of revenue they have right now. Yeah, it's ironic. He's reinvesting in the company just in a different way, Leslie, than we're used to seeing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like the, the task rabbit of SPACs right now. Um, no, I think it's, it's funny. Matt Levine, actually, of Bloomberg, had a great take on this. And he said he wouldn't be surprised, basically, if Kodak reported that, you know, they had revenue of $4.99 because they developed one roll of film for their founder. You know, right. playing a joke on just this idea that you see all of this, you know, uh, excitement surrounding these companies pre-revenue. Um, Kodak, obviously, does have revenue, different than Nikola, but uh, funny nonetheless. And Dom, I think part of it is because Tesla has proven its its business model so well, actually. I mean, certainly the, the success of its cars, right? It, it's because look at what that company is worth now. Look at how much people love the cars. Look at how SpaceX, you know, Elon Musk's other project, launched uh, you know, private uh, astronauts landed them successfully. And, and people go, you know what? 
I'm willing to take a flyer on Nikola because maybe you know, these guys are going to go out there and really change the world. This is the take that matters. This is the one, Kelly, the one that you just said. Because after everything we've talked about right now, nobody said the word Tesla. And Tesla is the reason why people are bidding up Nikola. It's the reason why you're talking about this idea that a company could make nothing and still have the promise of making a lot of stuff down the line. Because when you look at Nikola, people are saying, if I could just get like half or like maybe 20 percent of what the Tesla run was like over the last seven, eight years, then this is going to be worth it. And then you throw solar installations in there. I mean, hello, Solar City, anybody, right, Tesla. Right. I mean, and this, is, this whole thing, it almost feels like they, they've gone through a template to make themselves Tesla version 2.0, except, and that's um, what they're doing. Except they're not electric vehicles. They're, hydro, they're a hydrogen station company. That doesn't seem hmm. to be getting across to the investors. That's I mean, true. Yeah. More unproven, Robert. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, they, and it, as we've seen with Tesla, even in that case, it's certainly not easy for him to do what he did. It's going to be a tough road for Trevor, too. All right. Let's move on to Facebook. Talk about the 19 state attorneys general and the AG of Washington, D.C., who are calling on the company to do more to limit hate speech. Among their seven recommendations, they want public third party audits, stronger filtering, reporting and blocking tools. And interestingly, a way for users to report harassment to a Facebook employee in real time, Robert, which would basically involve a hotline of sorts. I, it's almost like Facebook needs its own police force to deal with this. Well, they, they kind of already do, but it's online, and I think what, what these attorneys general are wanting is some kind of phone line where you can get on the phone and reach someone immediately and say, look, th there's hate speech, I see it, here's who it's coming from, take it down. Now, in Facebook's defense, they did screen or block or get rid of 9.6 million pieces of content in the first quarter, so they are policing this stuff. I, you know. In terms of the phone line, try getting anyone on a phone from any company these right. days. It's impossible. So I, I don't know that it would improve it that much. Um, but Facebook certainly has the money and resources to do it if they wanted to. And Dom, I, I'm curious about those resources. So we know they already have thousands and thousands of both employees and contractors going through content all the time. And of course it makes sense that if you see something that is going to directly affect your livelihood and reputation, you want Facebook to deal with it immediately. But again, a lot of these cases might be not black and white, but gray. And how does Facebook take the time to go through and figure that out? I, th I mean, th th that's the billion, maybe even trillion dollar question at this point. The, the idea here is if you have a situation where you are the arbiter, right, you're, you're the actual judge and, 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 and enforcement for particular types of speech, then it's going to be up on you to make sure that you're the ones who can actually live up to that expectation for you and your shareholders. Now, this is, there's, there's a broader social good that goes along with taking this hate speech down. But, of course, Facebook comes under all kinds of pressure and fire for what, what exactly does constitute that kind of behavior. And if you are going to regulate that, then my personal feeling is you should have Facebook do what they are going to do. And then customers and shareholders and everybody else should act the way that they're going to act re in response to that. With this particular move, I'm not sure if it sets up well for Facebook. They just have to deal with the idea that they have to deal with controversy, and this is going to be something that's just not going away anytime soon. Yeah, lest anyone think investors are worried by this prospect. The shares are up another 6% today. Just incredible. All right, let's talk about pool sales as well. We are making a huge splash with them during the pandemic because people are looking to get outside without leaving their homes. One company says customers are waiting three weeks just to make an appointment, Leslie, to talk about installations for 2021. I mean, I'm not going to lie, Kelly. If I could install a pool in a high-rise Manhattan apartment building, I might be on the phone waiting, you know, getting on that wait list as well. Uh, but it speaks to this broader dynamic. People are just looking for unique 
ways to be outside, to be together with their family in lieu of other things that they used to do, like go on vacation and go out to eat inside restaurants. People are trying to be more creative. It's, the Peloton has a wait list as well because people are trying to find new ways to exercise. And, you know, what's interesting is by the time these companies really do get their supply chains in order and are able to deliver pools and Pelotons and so forth, you know, will we see an end to the pandemic or right. potentially summer uh, that would inhibit, you know, the actual sales and getting rid of that inventory. Yeah. And Robert, what's interesting is they said in, in sort of suburban New Jersey, it used to be the homes with a pool were not selling so much. And now, of course, it's the complete opposite. <laughs> People don't even care what the house looks like. They say, it's got a pool, I'm sold. Yeah, complete opposite. I was talking to brokers today, actually, about why the suburbs are doing so well, what people are buying. The pool is the number one criteria right now for people looking in <laughs> Westchester, rural Connecticut, and parts of the Hamptons. And, it, you know, it makes sense because the community pools are closed right now. A lot of beaches and lakes are closed. The kids can't go to summer camp this year. And so it, it's the one thing where you can do where they can get some exercise aside from bike riding. They can cool off a little bit. And, um, you know, it, it's hard to find houses with existing pools because trying to get one built just from a regulatory community point of view yep. approval, let alone finding a builder who can do it, is tough. You mentioned bike sales, by the way. Ken, you cannot get a bike Can't find a bike. Can't no, find a bike anywhere. I wonder if bike theft is way up. I'm not saying that people are going to steal it, but clearly there's a hot market, secondary market for this stuff right now. Um, all right, before <laughs> we go, we have to talk about Dom's favorite subject. It's Costco. Uh, the company said its comp sales in July were up 13%. And of course, we'd expect them to get a boost right now. But Wall Street, I mean, that was more than double what they were expecting. They also saw more than 75% jump in digital sales. Uh, the shares, Dom, only about 1%, up 17% this year. It's interesting to compare them with BJ's and the other ones. We were having a debate backstage about which would you rather, Costco or BJ's. Um, since BJ's IPO in 2018, it's up 90%. Costco goes up 61%. I also think it's a factor of where you can actually find a Costco versus a BJ's versus a Sam's Club. I mean, Costco has locations in lots of different places. They span so many locations throughout the country. Personally, I've been to a Costco twice in just the last week and a half because there's two within a 10 to 15 minute drive of me. That makes it more accessible. What I did find interesting was the kind of traffic anecdotally at the Costco that I go to is definitely increased. Now, I, I went on a weekday afternoon after an early shift that I pulled here at CNBC, and it was amazing to me how many people were shopping at Costco at, say, 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday or a Tuesday. To me, that kind of speaks volumes about the brand proposition that Costco has. So it doesn't surprise me at all that Costco's doing and well the, and at all-time highs. The top two items are frozen food and liquor. So that's where we're at in America right now. <laughs> <laughs> but if you guys, if you ever look at the magazine, Leslie, the little Costco monthly thing that they send, I mean, you can get a hot tub, mm -hmm. you can get patio furniture, you can get exercise equipment. And a pool? Can you get a pool? You can get an inflatable one. <laughs> so if you one. can't get a pool, you can get a hot tub. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and an inflatable pool. That exactly. That works too. But if you look at where they saw the biggest increase in sales. It was largely the areas that have seen a spike in cases, you know, the southeast, the south, Texas. And so uh, it's not surprising that people would be stocking up on frozen food if they're a little more nervous to go out to eat or go to the grocery store. They're looking to kind of buy in bulk. Yep. Don you know what I still word. do? I still and I did it this this week. And, and people know what I'm talking about because I ran into a couple fans at my local Costco. <laughs> they were surprised that I still go for, yes, the rotisserie chicken because it costs four dollars and four dollars and ninety nine cents. It's the best rotisserie rotisserie chicken Costco I found out of any any grocery <laughs> store chain fantastic. or anything. Yeah, if you left without one, Dom, yeah. then I think people should be complaining. <laughs> I mean, that you can't go and leave without one of the rotisserie
rotisserie chickens. Thank you all today for Rapid Fire. Robert Frank, Leslie Picker, and Dom Chu. We really appreciate it. Still ahead, as people stay home and shop online, DHL has seen a surge in customer deliveries. And that e-commerce demand helped put their latest earnings in top shape. We're going to hear from the CEO next. As we head to break, here's a look at some of the names touching all-time highs today. Lowe's is up there. AMD, Zoetis, Activision, Blizzard. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. The pandemic may have fractured global supply chains, but it's been a windfall for international logistics giant DHL. The company reporting a healthy second quarter. Our Frank Holland spoke to the CEO just a short while ago. He joins me with the highlights. Frank? Hey there, Kelly. Shares of DHL trading higher after reporting revenues that beat estimates and Q2 profits that were in line with estimates for the world's largest shipper. The stock surging 75% from its 52-week low in March as e-commerce exploded during the pandemic. Here in the U.S., more than 85% of deliveries, they come from outside of North America. DHL says B2C deliveries in the first two quarters of 2020 jumped 40 per, from 40% to 60% of volume year over year. DHL Express America CEO Mike Parr is saying the softening U.S. dollar is also boosting demand for domestic products. We're growing double-digit outbound from the United States in regards to goods manufactured, developed, U.S. made goods going out to the world. It's growing double digits. And in response to the increased volume, DHL is testing robotics in Miami to speed up package processing and maintain social distancing. The company also using pop-up shops like this one in Washington, D.C., giving customers contactless drop-off and pickup. DHL is also exploring wider use of these electric cargo bikes it's also testing in Miami. Para says it could expand to other cities as B2C continues to grow because these bikes can actually deliver 10% more than large trucks in dense urban areas. You get an improvement based on the fact that you're going quicker to your stops. You're not having to find an appropriate parking space. You're not having to back up at the time. You're able to transact and do much more both horizontally and vertically. And DHL is forecasting its business will grow more than 50% year over year for the rest of 2020, with B2C being about 80% of that volume. The company also providing its workers with, with a more than $350 bonus for working during the pandemic. 80% of its employees are frontline workers. Kelly, back That's over to you. fascinating, Frank, to see those electric cargo bikes. And right. it kind of gets to my question, which is how much of this kind of boon for DHL do we expect to last after the pandemic? In other words, is there a way that they can capitalize on how well they're doing right now? Or once that demand recedes, it's going to be kind of back to normal, so to speak? Well, you know, Kelly, I asked them the same thing. What's the forecast beyond this? Where do they see it going? The thing they told me is that the volumes they're seeing right now is what they actually forecasted for 2022. So they're <laughs> clearly ahead of schedule. They've also hired or are in the process of hiring about 2,000 employees here in the U.S., boosting their U.S. workforce by about 20 percent. So obviously a commitment right there that they believe that this, this trend is going to continue long term. That makes sense. It's just accelerating the kind of digitization, the delivery of the U.S. economy. Interesting. Frank, thanks so much. We Thank appreciate you, it. Frank Holland with DHL. Still ahead, colleges borrowed heavily from the muni market over the years to make improvements. But now with enrollment numbers dropping significantly, we're going to look at how those debt loads have some schools teetering on the financial brink next. The Exchange is now a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts.
Welcome back. Outstanding public higher education debt surged more than 85 percent between 2007 and 2017. That outpaced all other major muni bond credit as colleges and universities used it to fund improvements like campus expansions. But with college matriculation now on the decline over the past few years and expected to be compounded by the pandemic, my next guest says that debt is growing more and more risky by the day. For more, let's bring in Tom McLaughlin. He's head of America's Fixed Income for UBS Financial Services. Tom, it's good to have you. Before we dive into this, how many investors might be exposed to this risk without realizing it? Well, right now, Kelly, the um, higher education constitutes about 7 or 8% 8 of the entire municipal market. So there is a fair amount of bonds out there. And unfortunately, there's an expectation among some investors that the colleges and universities and mass are very safe investments. And some are. But there are others that are going to have real problems in the uh, in the years ahead. Yeah, it reminds me of the way that college towns and university towns had been perceived as better uh, kind of better ratings um, because they had the stability, they had the steady employment, they had it through the last recession. Now they're facing a deep recession of their own. Who's hardest hit? Who's most at risk? Well, I think uh, the winners, you're going to have winners and losers here. And uh, the winners are going to be the schools with a national reputation which will allow them to draw students from a wider geographic base. Uh, and that's particularly true for schools in the Northeast and the Midwest. Um, those with ample endowments, um, you know, financial reserves, are going to be okay. And if you've got a really ideal physical location, uh, you're probably going to be fine too. But, but actually, preferably, you need two of those three characteristics to prosper over the course of the next decade or so. The demographics are actually working against small liberal arts colleges who from 1996 to, say, 2016 or 17, had the advantage of the baby boom shadow coming through. Right. Where so, you had so many more students coming in and applying to college. How many of those small liberal arts colleges might have to close? Or, to put it in, in kind of terms for your investors, how many might not be able to service their debt? Well, right now there are about 1,400 um, four-year colleges out there in America. Um, and there's probably another two or 3,000 that are offering community colleges, two-year degrees, et cetera. Among those small 1,400 schools, we haven't picked, that, picked an actual number, but there's a couple of hundred out there that are just basically suffering from this twin whammy, if you will, of unfavorable demographics and an embedded cost structure, whether it be capital infrastructure that you mentioned before that they've put in over the course of the last 20 years that they're still supporting, or you've got uh, tenured faculty that effectively constitutes an embedded cost. So uh, what we're recommending is that for investors who are moderately conservative, you really want to stick with flagship co uh, campuses of big public universities or highly selective private colleges that are likely to ride out the pandemic and the aftermath of that. Yeah, still, uh, that's pretty stark that a couple hundred colleges could have trouble paying these bills. There's another category that you also warn investors about as being pretty risky, and it's those bonds that are secured by narrow revenue pledges, like privatized student housing. Can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I should qualify uh, the couple hundred. You know, there will be a couple hundred, as you say, colleges that are going to have trouble. It doesn't mean they're all going to default, and that's an important concept. We have to make sure that we tell people. It's not like you're going to see 200 you know, roll over, mm. but there will be a few that will, and, they, and you will have a couple hundred that are going through some very difficult times. In terms of those with limited security pledges, the ones that are really at risk right now are those uh, pardon me, auxiliary revenue bonds that are backed by things like student fees, or intercollegiate sports revenue, revenue derived from arenas, things like that. And one other sector that's really having some problems in the last six months are privatized student housing sector. Mm. 
these are bonds that are basically secured by individual rents on uh, kind of private, privately managed dormitories that may or may not be on the campus of the, of the school. And as a consequence of COVID, of course, with so many uh, students basically being remote, there's much less demand for those particular types of dormitories. Yeah, and I can imagine that this also affects uh, the municipal investments for the communities at large. Uh, in just a word, would you warn investors away from those too? No, not yet. I mean, I think at this point what we're seeing is um, in, the, in, the, in the broader context, obviously state governments are having their own financial stress, and that's likely to continue for a couple of years. They will probably re- reduce aid to local governments. Yeah. We always have this saying that credit risk flows downhill. So as states cut back aid to local governments, you may see some of those smaller towns have some difficulty as well. Yeah. Uh, it's really important to basically go with those particular uh, issuers in the municipal market, whether it be colleges or whether it be municipalities that have accumulated reserves when the times were good. Tom, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for bringing this to our forefront. My pleasure. Tom McLaughlin of UBS Financial Services. And before we go, take a quick look at shares of Disney. The stock is jumping midday as longtime activist investor Daniel Loeb says he took a new position in the stock during the second quarter. Loeb is the manager of Third Point. He initiated the long position when the stock stock sank, he said, as investors began to worry about theme park and movie theater closures. He says those concerns mask a compelling opportunity, including streaming. He told our Scott Wapner there isn't a close number two rival to Disney. The shares are up about 2%. And that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.